Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, March 16th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the legislature advances bills that change voting regulations and increase penalties in the state. Then, a southern city prepares to host the first two rounds of college basketball's March Madness. Plus, what a cap on insulin costs could mean for Mississippians living with diabetes. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Changes in voting laws and procedures could be coming to the Magnolia State this week. Both chambers made final passage on legislation that places tighter restrictions on absentee voting. Senate Bill 2358 bans ballot harvesting. It's a measure supported by both Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, who served three years as Secretary of State, and Michael Watson, who is currently occupying the office. Watson tells us it will help reduce voter fraud. Ballot harvesting is basically going around and getting a, a number of ballots, uh, coaching folks on how they need to cast that ballot and then turning those ballots in. So it's something that a lot of folks don't understand has been legal in Mississippi. And so this legislation would ban that activity. There are a few exceptions. Uh, so if somebody has a family member or if there's a, a certain types of officials that can help folks with their ballots. Uh, so there are slim uh, exceptions there. But most of all, I think it's really important people know we're going to ban a ballot harvesting here in Mississippi. So this is more about the mail-in way of voting. Right, when folks are going around collecting these ballots and then turning them in, so they're harvesting ballots. And again, too many times we've seen folks going around and, and, and coaching folks on how they need to cast their ballot and then taking their ballot for them. So that's uh, something that, that we see. Again, people talk about this all the time. You see the fraud in absentee ballot and mail-in balloting. So the more opportunities that we can have uh, to make sure that that's not happening in Mississippi, the cleaner our elections will be. And I think election integrity uh, cuts across both party lines. Uh, everybody should want to have good, clean, safe, fair elections. According to the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, there have been a total of seven identified cases of absentee voting fraud since 1993. None of those cases are more recent than 2011. There was spirited debate in the House of Representatives yesterday regarding HB 1306. 
It's a bill with a number of new regulations, including language about absentee voting and the penalties that come with fraudulently voting twice. Dan Eubanks, a Republican from Walls, introduced the bill. He was asked by Democrat John Hines of Greenville how the legislation could affect seniors in assistant living facilities. So if a nursing home director is being proactive, knowing that he or she has patients inside that nursing home that possibly would want to vote and they have absentee ballots there prior to the election so those people can vote. Has that person created fraud? Well, as long as... Because under your explanation, you just said if they don't ask for it, then that's fraud. But if I'm trying to be proactive and ensure that my residents don't miss a timetable or a deadline to vote, am I committing a crime? I'm going to say, yeah, because even, uh, hold on before you, before you get at me, because I understand what you're, I understand what you're trying to do by being proactive, but maybe that's what we need to do is instruct our folks to make sure that they ask, they get that permission, just don't jump out there thinking that they're doing a good job, because like, like I told y'all the other day, I want you to vote if you're supposed to vote. But I will say this too: if you're not doing it right, I'm just as I'm just as against that. So I think we all are. I think every one of us in here don't want to be cheating. We want to do it the right way. And I promise you, like I told y'all the other day, I'm doing it as best as I know how and as fair as I possibly can. But, but, but sir, hold on a minute, hold on. But if that person is running that nursing home does this without getting permission of the voter, then yeah, it's fraud. I don't care what you're trying to make it look like, make it look pretty by being proactive, and I commend you on trying to do that, but it's fraudulent. So make sure, we need to make sure that, and I don't know how you're going to get the word out to the nursing homes and mental health facilities, but they have got to do it right. So ask for the permission. Then you won't be wrong. The bill would also enhance penalties for Mississippians who vote twice in an election. Democrat Zakia Summers of Jackson questioned what she called vague language and harsh penalties. I think this language really creates a slippery slope that's going to end up getting a lot of people in trouble. And once you're convicted of voter voter fraud because of a mistake, you lose your voting rights. Unless you come well, back to the legislature to get a suffrage bill passed by two-thirds of both houses, which is not all easy to do. I'm going to go back to what I said. If, if, if you show up to do that, then you know what you're doing. And, I, you know, you've you done it intentionally. I'm just going to disagree. Agree, I'm going to disagree with you on your, your thoughts of it. But. Okay. HB 1306 is currently being held on a motion to reconsider, but it is expected to pass out of the chamber. There is also legislation that provides for post-election audits. It's another move that has the support of the Secretary of State, Michael Watson. When you think about post-election audits, it's been a big conversation since the 2020 election. Too many times you have folks that say, you know what, uh, that's just a, a Republican a request. 
well, back in 2016, after uh, President Trump won his term, there was a group with uh, John John Podesta, uh, Hillary Clinton, and several others that came out with a report and said, how do we make our elections better? One of the recommendations, post-election audits. So that's something that both parties actually agree on. It's just unfortunate that they only talk about it when their person is the one that lost. So post-election audits are a really important thing. And what we would do with those is a, a procedural audit. So we would uh, audit all 82 counties over um, current language has it in two years. We, we hope to get that in four years. Uh, so we'd have some time to break that down. But basically, we would go in and look at affidavit ballots, look at absentee ballots. Did you follow the law? Did you the correct the process, the correct process. Did you follow it at the local level? So making sure people are following the law. Again, that's a measure that I think will return some good confidence to the process. Michael Watson is the Secretary of State for Mississippi. Coming up, a southern city prepares to host the first two rounds of college basketball's March Madness. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. Have you ever wondered what that family heirloom might be worth? The Mississippi Roadshow is coming to the Trotter Convention Center in Columbus on April 21st. We're looking to uncover the hidden treasures that the Golden Triangle and surrounding areas hold. At the first Mississippi Roadshow in Jackson, some items were valued up to $20,000. Join the Mississippi Roadshow at the Trotter Convention Center in Columbus on April 21st. For ticket information, call 844-874-6874 or visit MPB online.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Starting today, Birmingham will host the first and second rounds of the NCAA men's basketball tournament through Saturday for the first time in 15 years. The University of Alabama and Auburn University are scheduled to play today, bringing even more excitement to the local community. WBHM's Cody Short reports for the Gulf States Newsroom on what the games mean to folks in the area. Crystal Bryant has a bakery in the middle of the BJCC campus. K&J Elegant Pastries is known for its colossal milkshakes and custom cakes. On the weekends, her store is usually packed with visitors. But this weekend, she's expecting a much larger crowd. I'm so excited about the NCAA games. Bryant says it's going to be all hands on deck as her 15-person staff prepares for the rush. I had to do a big order, containers, ice cream, all of that is already done for the week. So we're basically just trying to work ahead. So I'm trying to work ahead on my cakes, work ahead, because I know Thursday and Saturday. But this kind of business is why Bryant is here. Her store used to be in Alabaster, a small town south of Birmingham. She moved to the convention complex knowing opportunities like March Madness would bring in lots of business. And, you know, I want to commend the city of Birmingham and the BJCC for doing such an amazing job by bringing so many different events here. As long as they keep events flowing, we'll be slamming. So it's awesome. 
Restaurants, hotels, Uber drivers, and DoorDashers are expected to make a little extra money because of the crowds of people coming to the city for the games. Yeah, we're looking certainly upwards of $10 million. That's David Galbo. He's the vice president of sports sales and marketing for the Greater Birmingham Convention and Visitors Bureau. $10 million is down slightly from earlier estimates. But those came in before it was clear that Alabama and Auburn were playing the opening round here. That means there's a huge local draw for those games and for the tournament as a whole. So that drives down a little bit in terms of that economic impact for the sheer fact that if you've got somebody that already lives here and they're going to, um, you know, the game, they're not going to, you know, come in and uh, spend the night in a hotel and, you know, they might eat at home. So it might just be a little bit different in terms of the variables. But there are some Alabama fans coming in from out of state, including Christian Sykes, who is headed down from North Carolina. Sykes graduated from the University of Alabama and runs a website dedicated to the school's basketball team. I do think that there's a lot of culture and a lot of things that people can, you know, go and experience in Birmingham. He says he thinks when people visit Alabama or even live in other parts of the state, Birmingham gets looked over in favor of Tuscaloosa, Huntsville and Montgomery. But he thinks the city's culture is important for outsiders to experience. You know, there's a lot of black history, you know, black empowerment that I really think that, you know, me being a a white person, it's a beneficial learning experience for me, to say the least. Sports reporter Kevin Skarbinski remembers when the NCAA used to come to Birmingham on a regular basis. You know, from 1982 to 1997, we hosted five NCAA tournament regionals. And of course, the regionals determine the four champions that go to the final four. And only one city in the country, only one arena in the country, hosted more regionals in that time. But the NCAA tournament hasn't been in Birmingham since 2008. Since then, the Legacy Arena has made major renovations and other parts of the BJCC have expanded to host more visitors for large events. Again, the redo of Legacy Arena, the entire uptown area, and all the work that's been done there. Now this is validation that we are back in the game and we will be hosting at least NCAA basketball tournaments and most likely a lot more going forward. And he's right. There will be more NCAA games coming to Birmingham. The Division I women's basketball tournament will play at Legacy Arena in 2025. Cody Short, WBHM. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public media stations in Louisiana and Alabama. Last night, the 11th seed Mississippi State women's basketball team defeated Illinois in playing round. They advanced to play Friday against Creighton. The 8th seeded University of Mississippi women will also play Friday against Gonzaga. Mississippi State's men's team lost in the opening round Tuesday night. Coming up, what a cap on insulin costs could mean for Mississippians living with diabetes. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. MPB Think Radio, whatever your taste, news, music, storytelling, or how-to shows. Whatever your city, Gulfport, Fernando, Meridian, Greenville, however you want. Radio, smart speaker, smartphone app, MPB Think Radio. 
The radio reading service of Mississippi provides print-impaired Mississippians with news, information, and entertainment. To learn more or to see if you qualify, call 601-432-6301. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Earlier this month, insulin maker Eli Lilly announced it will cut prices for some older insulins later this year and immediately give more patients access to a cap on costs they pay to fill prescriptions. The move promises critical relief to some people with diabetes who can face annual costs of more than $1,000 for insulin they need in order to live. According to CDC data from 2018, more than one in 10 Mississippi adults has been diagnosed with diabetes. Arana McLean is Associate Director of the Diabetes Foundation of Mississippi. She shares more on what the price reductions and cost caps could mean for those Mississippians living with the disease. You know, our biggest um, program here at the Diabetes Foundation of Mississippi is our patient assistance program. And we send out insulin every week. We've even had parents drive for hours. We had a mom from Indianola drive down to pick up some insulin for her daughter. She has a current prescription. Mom has um, insurance through the state, but her copay somehow changed. And all of a sudden they were asked to pay $800 and, you know, she was not, that would have been a hardship for the family and we happened to have what they needed in stock. So she came on down and picked some up for her daughter. Um, you know, the the physician approved um, a donation for her and it just, uh, we were with the physicians and the, you know, pharmacies to make sure that people have active prescriptions and that they have been seeing their doctor. But, you know, we're, we see a lot of that. We see a lot of people, um, especially in the senior citizen group, and we're hoping that that changes, you know, that get into the donut hole with their insulin, and then all of a sudden they're supposed to pay full price for it. And, and that's difficult for seniors also. So we're, we were happy when we heard about the cap for seniors, but we're thrilled about the cap um, for the cost of insulin for everybody else with type 1 diabetes, and they have to have insulin to live, and type 2 diabetes, probably 40 to 60% of people with type 2 diabetes are taking some type of insulin. So it's it sounds wonderful, and we just need to see how this all plays out. Sounds like there's quite a few different types of insulin. Yeah, there are. Eli Lilly is putting a cap on a couple of different kinds. It looks, it says that they're, um, let's see, effective immediately. Lily will automatically cap out-of-pocket costs at $35 at participating retail pharmacies for people with commercial insulin, uh, commercial insurance, pardon me, using Lily insulin. So it's, I guess that's effective immediately. And then people who don't have insurance go on the insulinaffordability.com and can download an insulin savings card to receive the insulin for $35 per month. Whether it's something that they can do indefinitely, I don't know. Um, you know, I'll be, uh, I'll be looking to, to see how that works because, like I said, our, our biggest program is helping people with their medications. And, you know, I, I'd like to think that this is going to really be a huge benefit to people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. 
and I'm hoping that the other pharmaceutical companies that make insulin will follow suit because that would be wonderful. The thing about it, a lot of people don't realize that there are some people where one type of insulin, one type of rapid-acting insulin works better in, in them than another one. And so we want people to be able to use the insulin that works best for them. So that's a, that's a you know something to consider, too. There's only three companies that yeah. make insulin, Eli Lilly, yeah. Norvo Nordics, and, uh-huh, Nordisk, yeah, and, and Santa Fe. Okay, yeah. and yeah. Uh, they supply just about the entire world. Yeah, and, you know, I'll tell you, it's it's been with COVID, we've seen... Um, more people diagnosed with diabetes. We've been communicating with university because the number of children diagnosed with diabetes in 2020 increased 53%, and we had another large increase in 2021. Um, these The kids that have type 1 diabetes are all going to be using insulin to control their blood sugar, and majority of the kids with type 2 diabetes will also be using insulin. Um, type 1 diabetes is thought to be triggered by virus or something in the environment. COVID was certainly a virus, so there's the, the idea behind the trigger with that. And you have to use insulin from the moment of diagnosis. And type 2 diabetes, you still make some insulin, but uh, for some reason your body can't use it properly, so a lot of people end up needing to use some insulin with type 2 diabetes. Type 2 is the more common form of the disease, We and you know estimate about 95% of the population with diabetes has type 2 diabetes, and type 1 diabetes accounts for about 5%. But we see adults diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Type 1 used to be called juvenile diabetes, and then we realized adults up into their ninth decade of life can develop type 1. And uh, we used to call type 2 adult onset, but we see four, five, and six-year-old kids diagnosed with it. And it's so prevalent in Mississippi. We have very high rates. Where do we rank nationwide? We're in the top three. I mean, it's, it's a terrible position to be in. You know, you'd rather be like number 50 in something like diabetes and and, and all that, but it's, um, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, and West Virginia, definitely. And it has to do, you know, people, um, I guess a lot of times don't realize that obesity is associated with poverty um, because, you know, those calorie-dense uh, fast foods, things things that just are not necessarily the best food choices for you, um, are associated with people who are on the lower end of the economic um, status, I guess you'd say. And, you know, it's it's tragic to see that the people without insurance or with minimal coverage are the ones that are disproportionately affected by diabetes. How much of a difference is this going to make? That's a good question. We'll have to see because it's, it's you know, are the public aware of, of about it? Um, you know, will doctors be uniformly aware of it where they can tell their patients? We're hoping it's going to be a big, di- you know, we, big difference for people. You've seen the stories of people with type 1 rationing their insulin with, you know, horrible outcomes. You know, some people have actually died from 
having very high blood sugar with type 1 diabetes that puts them into a potentially life-threatening condition called diabetic ketoacidosis. But that's been in the news over the past couple of years where people just simply couldn't afford it. So they would cut back on the amount that they took, and that resulted in having higher blood sugars and putting them at risk for DKA. I'm hoping it makes a huge difference. Arena McLean is Associate Director of the Diabetes Foundation of Mississippi. In part two of our conversation tomorrow. The thought is that it's the structure of how insurance uh, and pharmaceutical companies work together. I guess it's the pharmacy benefit managers. How costs got to where they are in the first place. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.